Hello podcast listeners, my name is Susanna Roberts and welcome to the Property Woman podcast where we are exploring the many opportunities available in the real estate industry. My guest today started out as a development analyst focusing on shopping centres. She later became a fund analyst for a logistics real estate fund manager and then stayed in fund management. She is now the portfolio manager for a 3 billion euros funds platform covering the UK and Europe. Born in Canada, with work she has travelled and lived in Toronto, London, Brussels and is now based in Amsterdam, whilst being a mother to two young boys. Please welcome Sylvia Slaughter. So Sylvia, thank you for being here and being on the first ever episode of Property Women. Happy to be here. So Sylvia, you've travelled the world with work. You're now based in Amsterdam, whilst being married and with two young boys. That is pretty extraordinary. Have you always wanted to travel? How do you and your husband manage it? And does language form a barrier? I think both of us have always wanted to travel and live in different places. Compared to the rest of the world, Canada is still a pretty small market. It's been kind of a natural feeling of wanting to get out of the small town, see how things are done elsewhere in the bigger markets. And so when we got together, we talked about moving abroad. And funny enough, we actually found an old list recently of places we'd like to live in the world that we made when we were first together, like back in like 2002, 2003. And on that list, we had like the UK, Hong Kong, Singapore, and oddly enough, Amsterdam was actually on that list. In the end, our first move back then, and this would be 2006, we opted to target an English-speaking uh, country, you know, thinking it'd probably be easiest finding jobs and and also, I guess, work visas. I do think citizens of the EU, they're really incredibly fortunate to have that freedom of movement for workers, whereas my husband and I were both Canadians, so we can really only legally work in Canada. So any move abroad will always involve like extra work with, you know, getting all the legal bits sorted. I guess as we got older, um, a little more established in our careers, I think that makes a difference. We kind of had our first expat experience under our belt and you get a bit braver with choices. And then we took on moving to Taiwan and Brussels and, and now Amsterdam. And language, I think it's an interesting one. I mean, English is really like it is the common language in so many places in the world. Especially if you end up working for like a big global multinational company, like English will definitely be the default language for business. But that's a completely different story when you're trying to mix with the local culture. Language can be like a huge barrier. So, yeah, I do think if you want to have a a kind of a happy life in your new home, you have to have a little bit of the local language to really feel a bit integrated. You've been a fund manager in the industrial sector for nine years. For listeners who do not know... What is a fund manager and is it half as sexy as it sounds? (laughs) So my 10th year in fund management in the logistics sector, and I don't think I've heard anyone ever describe fund management as sexy. Fund management, it's sometimes called portfolio management, but broadly speaking, it really is just the management of investments on behalf of investors. So for me specifically, it's investing investor money in logistics real estate assets, and it's maximizing returns to investors within, you know, an acceptable level of risk. And I think for me, what really appealed to me about working in fund management was how broad it actually is. I mean, I spent my first seven years at the beginning of my career working in a variety of analyst roles. I was a development analyst running valuation models. I was an investment analyst working on new investments and asset management strategies. And then when I switched into a fund analyst role in the fund management team, it was really the first time in my career that I felt that all of my previous roles kind of came together. And I mean, fund management kind of brings together 
all the acquisition work, the development, the asset management, the valuations, but then it like it takes it further. So it's like you're laying on the capital management, the debt, the financing, the risk management, governance, investor relations. And I clearly remember in the first six months in that fund analyst role, and I had that like complete light bulb aha moment of like, mm. yeah, this is what I want to do. This is it. So can you talk us through a typical working day for you? Yeah, I'll try. I mean, it, it, it always does vary, but let's assume that I'm in Amsterdam. So like, like I'm not traveling for work. So like a typical day, like start to finish, mm-hmm. I get up around seven or whenever my kids get up, they're six and nine. So they're not exactly quiet in the morning. So when mm-hmm. they're up, I'm up. I take the kids to school in the morning, drop them off. It's usually between 825, 845. I'll also give a little plug for Amsterdam here. But okay. um, one of the things I really love about Amsterdam is that if you live in Amsterdam city, your commute is never really that long. Like everything is like bikeable within 20, 25 minutes in the whole city. Compared to other cities I lived in, it's just so incredibly special to have such an easy commute. And compared to like London or Toronto, like the commute times are so much smaller, um, I find in Amsterdam. So, but anyway, I bike to work. Um, I'm in the office usually a bit before nine. It works out really well because our colleagues in Singapore, it's still their afternoon. So you can kind of sync up on things. The actual work, I mean, it's so varied. There's always something in the portfolio that we're working through, whether it's like some leasing or there's a development project going on. But a lot of our day is really connecting with the rest of the business. It's about what's happening in the fund assets. And it's, I mean, it's so critical that we have to collaborate with all the departments in the business. Depending where we are in the financial quarter, we could be doing an investor report or we could have some meetings with investors. If there's something happening in the fund that's like outside of the annual business plan, then we have a lot of work to do directly with the investors with regards to investment recommendations. No day is the same as the one before and it's probably what I really love. Oh, and then lunchtime. So mm-hmm. I'll give um, another little plug for Amsterdam. Um, it. It's very normal to have the Dutch offices you kind of eat together and we're particularly a small office in Amsterdam. So there's only about eight or nine of us now. And so we eat together kind of family style when we kind of like all share together the food and it's actually really nice for the culture of the office like it brings us together as a bit of a family and it's really nice I've never seen that in any other country that I've lived in my husband picks up the kids so try to make it home for dinner most days I think like most jobs like you have your peaks and your troughs um, in the workflow there's definitely some times where the evenings are later than others I did make a personal rule for myself a few years ago after my first son was born to really consciously try to be there for dinner I mean unless I'm in a meeting with somebody I try my best to remember to watch the clock mm-hmm. you know you stop what you're doing and go home and be with the family whatever I'm working on if it really needs to be done that day it can probably wait two hours for me to go home be with the family and then log back in after the kids are in bed that is such a great kind of rule or benchmark mm. to measure yeah. what you've got in front of you against can it wait two hours exactly. and I think almost everything yeah it can probably wait two hours yeah exactly yeah. and yeah. that's not terribly long and I think that puts things in perspective. I think yeah. it's great. It's but it's a it's a hard thing to kind of train yourself on because I mean you do get on a momentum and you get in the zone on something, but then you got to remember that like it's time to stop, take a break. You have to find that balance for yourself. Yeah, and try to take the time to be with the family. I mean, after the kids are in bed at this stage of my life, if there is any work to pick up, I pick it up. But I also try to sneak in a bit of yoga classes. I play a bit of tennis with one of the other expat moms. Doing like this podcast, I kind of had time to really think about like what how my life has been with kids. Like, so my oldest is nine and it's, and it does evolve so much. Like I remember, you know, when you have a baby versus a toddler versus a preteen, like it's such a different parenting experience. So like, I know if we were having this conversation like five years ago, <laughs> it would have been 
there would be no yoga classes and tennis probably. Mm-hmm. It would have been a lot more talking about catching up on sleep or trying to catch up on work. I, I think at that stage of life, parents are like in complete survival mode. Totally yeah. different. And I feel like I I've turned imagine. a different stage of my parenting life that the kids are older and it, it does definitely feel more balanced than it did when they were like really young babies. You studied finance at Ivy Business School at Western University. Mm. There is a lot of research claiming that generally women are not attracted to economics or finance degrees. And despite the initiatives of groups such as the 30% Club, which aims to work with businesses to broaden the pipeline of female talent at all levels, the Financial Times reported in June 2018 that only 37% of MBA in their top rated 100 programs were held by women and I'd like to point out this was an increase from 33% in 2013. Mm. Why did you choose finance and were you one of the few women on the course and how did that feel if you were? I'm one of those that were just you know naturally drawn to finance so I was always good at math I genuinely liked math growing up I don't know if it's hereditary. My dad did a lot of math competitions at the national level. He became an engineer. I also remember at school in Canada where we have like different streamings of levels. I was put into the advanced math classes and and I had some really, really great teachers over the years who made math a lot of fun. I don't know, university, I mean, I did major in business administration and I was in the undergraduate degree of the MBA program. My class was over 200 people, but for whatever reason, I mean, it was fairly well gender balanced. I'm always surprised when I read the stats about like that the average MBA has less women and and substantially less women, like not by a little bit, mm. because my undergrad, it was pretty equal for me. So I don't know what happens between the undergrad and, and graduate side. And for me, I mean, this is early 2000s. So this is already like a while ago. And it was pretty decent gender parity in my um in my business degree. But I do kind of look back and, you know, see like, you know, where did the women I went to school with, where do they end up? And to be fair, not that many went into finance. It's it's interesting. When I did go into commercial real estate, it was when I was a development analyst, I remember it was quite mixed. Then as I moved more into like valuations, investments, it got more and more increasingly um, surprisingly male dominated. How did you get into fund management? It's probably one of the more well-known parts of the business. It's certainly, I think, like one of the ones which most people want to get into. What attracted you to the role? I mean, for me, I didn't really know much about it before I went into it. Canada does not have like very deep real estate fund management private equity industry like Europe, the US, like everywhere else in the world. For me, I had got to the UK in that first move back in 2006 and I was working one job and it wasn't the best fit. And I remember talking to a recruiter and looking for the next role and he put this job spec in front of me and it was for a fund analyst position at a logistics fund manager. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what this is about. I've never heard of what a fund analyst is, but the job description sounded really interesting. So then I go in for the interview. I got along so well with the people and I got really excited about it and I decided to go for it. Lucky enough, if, if, you know, a few months in, I just, I knew I loved it. You know, it's like dating, I guess. Once you know, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I suppose that's like a little lesson, like don't be afraid to do something you've not pre-researched too much. Type definitely. Thing. Yeah, definitely. Because I think at that time when I was recruiting, I wanted to, you know, stay on retail shopping centers. I wasn't even interested in logistics. I was probably keen to get into a big corporate again. Like I look back and think I'm so glad that I took a you punt. Know, yeah. And, and just had to go and see like, and it's been fantastic. I think for many coming from a real estate background, it's easy to think that the world of fund management 
and the likes are not available to us having not come from a financial background. Is this correct? Fundamentally, funds management is about managing investor returns. Mm -hmm. And so that's ultimately financial. But if you want to get into fund management, I don't think you absolutely need to have a strong financial background going in. It definitely helps, but you definitely need to be ready to learn it. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, your background can be quite varied. And I think of the different people I've worked with in, in fund management over the years. I mean, they come from all sorts of backgrounds. Like there's a couple that came directly from the accounting side. I came from the business background where I'd done accounting courses in school and I'd, I'd already done the first two levels of the CFA. But I mean, I still found those first few months tough. I'd, I'd been a development analyst, an investment analyst. I'd done valuations. But when you're modeling a fund, it's still so different that I still found there was a steep learning curve for me. I think you can come at it from any background. Just be ready to learn the financial side. Noted. What would you say are the key skills required to be a successful fund manager? So, I mean, the obvious ones, obviously, like the financial, the investment side, you really need to be highly collaborative in your job and you need to have solid communication skills. I mean, fund managers do spend an enormous amount of time in contact with investors I wish I could say they were always happy, rosy conversations, but I mean, there are times when some of the some of your interactions can be really tough. So it, it helps to have that communications background a bit too. I know you're going into the lion's den. Do you not have good news to deliver? How do you prepare yourself? It is difficult. When you're starting out, you can always kind of take comfort that you're in a team. I think back to my earlier years, we went through the global financial crisis and there were some tough conversations to be had in those in those times of investors. You really learn from the people around you and you, you kind of gain that experience. And then I think back, there was a, a while ago, I was, this is when I was on the public market side. I remember being at a conference and I remember, it's kind of like a speed dating style. Uh, your advisors set up meetings and it's 20 minute meetings with investors and you're back to back for like, you know, 13 meetings in a row. Oh, wow. And one of the investors came in and was just upset and he got quite belligerent quite quickly and I don't know if anything can prepare you for that kind of an experience but I mean I remember that time being like okay he's angry so he needs to be heard but we need to like diffuse the situation as quickly as possible and like and move on and not get it and have it escalate and have people say things that you know they regret. Wow steep learning curve at times then. At times yeah at times you do get thrown in but I don't think you're ever really truly alone you're always in a team environment so you you learn off each other. What do you enjoy most about your job? I think for me, it's long-term relationship building. So like I said, after I did private equity fund management for eight years, I did switch over to do investor relations of a public REIT. It was a fantastic experience. But when I made the move back into private funds now, it was so striking to me how much more I enjoy, you know, building those long-term relationships with the investors. I mean, these private equity funds are typically long-term holds, like 10 years. There's typically some element of regular investor input or decision-making or decision collaboration. And as a result, on the private equity side, you you develop these really long-term relationships with um, the companies you work with and the people that work at those companies. I did find on the public market side, you just don't get the same sort of you know partnership situation. Yeah. So for those of our listeners who don't know, can you just sum up mm. the difference between private and public? Fundamentally, the public ones are listed on a stock exchange somewhere mm-hmm. and they have um, an element that the shares in that um, entity can be traded so that you can buy and sell out of your position. And as a result, your investors kind of come and go. Some people will buy and hold, but you will do, you still have a natural amount of stock that turns over on the stock exchange. Whereas the private equity, I mean, it depends on the structure of it, but typically liquidity, like being able to buy and sell out of the fund is, is a lot more constrained than on the, on the public market side. So... This is 
an interesting question Mm. what do you enjoy least about your job fund management can tend to be a bit of a catch-all some issue will come up and it's you know it doesn't fit in asset management it doesn't fit in finance it's not legal you know so it just ends up with the funds team because you know it it needs to go somewhere and so Mm -hmm. um you end up with some random things at times but i don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing like you end up picking up some really interesting things like random things here and there So. so that brings us to our quick tick questions so this okay. is the part in the interview where we just want your gut reactions to these ever so important questions <laughs> drum roll please question one steel cap boots or safety goggles boots always footwear question two minimum eaves height or sight density sight density irr or cash on cash yield such a tough one i want to say ior but i think cash on cash yield brompton bike versus penny farthing i feel like i should have some allegiance to something dutch but um brompton bike it is <laughs> and then this is the most important of the question sylvia maple syrup or golden syrup <laughs> maple syrup there's no question <laughs> You've worked in the retail and logistics sector, but have focused primarily on industrial over recent years. Mm-hmm. Was that by design or by chance? Completely by chance. So I said earlier that like I moved to the UK and after the first job, you know, it wasn't the right fit. And I was working with that recruiter to find a new job. Um, so aside from not being familiar with fund management, he the job spec was also for logistics. And I, I remember saying to the recruiter, no, I don't do industrial. <laughs> At that point in time, I'd been predominantly doing retail shopping centers for about seven-ish years. And I, I really liked that side of the real estate world. You know, like I said, I really liked the people, the company, and I took a chance and I made the switch. And I mean, in those years, so this is like 2007 and eight, you know, when we were equity raising, we still had slides in the pitch deck saying, uh, why invest in logistics? We had to do so much work still with convincing investors to make this a part of their portfolio allocation to actually to logistics. And it's so funny when you look at the situation now where logistics is in such high demand from investors that like yeah. that 10 years ago, it, like we had to struggle to get people to pay attention uh, as an asset class. But seeing how retail has declined recently, I wish I could say this was like all my grand prediction skills. <laughs> and and I, I was seeing the impending macro shifts coming. But uh, no, no, it was it was really it was really by chance for me. And what do you like about logistics? For me, it's absolutely like the unseen economy, retail, offices, hotels, I think because we see them and we interact with them regularly, it's really visible and really understood. But logistics and the whole supply chain, it's like it's not something you see directly every day, even though it's absolutely a part of your consumer life and everything we do kind of depends on that logistics supply chain. So once I started touring assets and seeing what actually happens in the buildings, it was so fascinating because you can see buildings that are storing auto parts or clothes or grocery, um, liquor. I mean, it can really be anything. You were saying just now about how looking back, it's quite funny that you had to convince people Mm -hmm. to go into logistics. The logistics market is commonly referred to as hot in the press majorly due to the rise of e-commerce, making it a safer investment, especially in these uncertain times. What do you think the future of logistics looks like? Well, I mean, I think we've settled kind of probably into a new normal. When I started logistics real estate, e-commerce was still like the new trend. It was like the new thing that people were trying to understand. I mean, like, is this going to last? I mean, 10 years ago, I would have conversations with senior colleagues in the company and they'd be like, so do you do this whole online shopping thing? 
I mean, to ask that question now would be kind of crazy. Like it's completely, completely normal now. In some countries, I think it's going to be about playing catch up and getting more consumers to have that high e-commerce penetration rate, something more on par with the UK. I mean, the UK is kind of leading the rest of Europe. China, US are up there like globally. But in other places like in the UK where it is already so established, it's about constantly satisfying the demand from consumers to deliver things faster and faster and faster. And it's it's what's really going to move logistics buildings closer to customers, closer to the population clusters. And the industry needs to do something about addressing the rate of returns that consumers um, you know, do when they order online. Like you know the example, you hear someone who needs to buy a pair of shoes and they they don't know exactly which size is gonna fit. Yeah. So they buy the size they think that's gonna fit and they buy one smaller and one bigger and then they try them on see what works and then they return the other two and the returns are generally free like that is part of the yeah, pricing like ASOS does that exactly and if you think about it it's priced into like their business model that they expect a certain level of returns to come back but i mean the margins are so thin in e-commerce that if you can cut back on that you know what they call the reverse logistics all those returns I think it changes your cost structure and then people can compete better. And and there's a whole other side of it to be like the sustainability thing. Like you're just trucking things back and forth. It's not a sustainable solution at all, but tech might be able to disrupt it. The concept of virtual fitting rooms on your smartphone is kind of... I've heard of that. It's also the way I think retail is trying to adapt a little bit too, to kind of combine like if you have a virtual fitting room in a store in a mall, but then it gets delivered for a logistics site, it kind of combines the two industries together. Like people talk about the death of retail. Retail has always been an ever-evolving industry, and I think the innovation will come, and it'll just evolve into a new state of being. Same with e-commerce and, like, you know, moving things in the reverse logistics. Like, it's going to be some sort of clever innovation again that's going to just launch it into the next, you know, the next iteration of what is the new normal. We hear almost nothing but positive things about the logistics sector. What challenges, if any, do mm-hmm. you think are facing the logistics sector? On the e-commerce side, it's really interesting how labor supply is still such a constant challenge. And this has been a challenge over like the 10 years. So before the robotics and the automation, there was still like you needed all these workers to pick and pack, do all the actual like work inside the warehouse and yeah. been made enormous investments on the robotic automation of the, the picking and, and the conveyor belts. But what's really surprising is the amount of labor is still really high. And it's something I think we've seen globally is that around the world, they just struggle to find enough people to work in these buildings. And the other problem is keeping those people, because if another, you know, e-commerce building opens up just down the road and offers just a little bit more, like you end up in a highly competitive situation on labor. So it's a challenge and, and we'll see how, you know, that evolves for the players. But all those robotics and all the automation and some of the conveyor belt systems are extremely sophisticated in these parcel sorting facilities for delivering the packages. Like, it's a huge amount of power that's needed for these sites. And like 10, 15 years ago, like these were pretty simple logistics boxes that were being built. And now these e-commerce operators, they go in, they install racking systems, conveyor belts, everything else, and it needs power. And if trucking goes electric too, there's going to be power demands and and that's going to be a challenge as well. And we're going to move on to the more social side of the interview. So that was all about the role, fund management and how to get into it, if that's what you're interested in. And also a few questions relating to the market associated with our interviewee, Sylvia, in logistics. Going on to the next part, Sylvia, we've already spoken about how you've managed to travel with work, but you also travel frequently to other European offices. You're in London with me now and you're based Mm. in Amsterdam. How do you find this? And as a parent, do you ever feel guilty? And Mm. how do you justify it to yourself? Yes, for sure. 
I think most working parents, we all share this. There is an element to travel in my job. In the past, when I think when I was doing a lot of equity raising, definitely on the road a lot more and you're meeting and pitching to investors. Yeah, you for sure feel the guilt. I remember being delayed in one flight and I was stuck at the airport and I'd promised my two-year-old that I'd be home for bedtime and and I'm not going to be home because the flight's delayed. You know, I was that parent in the corner of the airport on my phone reading, you know, Goodnight Moon from memory to him. And when I hung up, like I felt so guilty about it afterwards. This was seven years ago and I, I will still, you know, remember these guilty moments. I mean, at the same time, I I think, you know, pursuing a challenging career and it does set an example for your kids about passion, ambition, personal fulfillment. You passively inspire your kids through your actions, you know, not just your words. So, I mean, I hope they grow up with some of these traits and hopefully a bit inspired for themselves. Most people tend to settle near their family Mm. so they can call in their parents to help Mm. out with their kids. But obviously you and your husband are far away from Mm -hmm. any assistance of that kind. So what do you do when real life happens Mm. and one of your children is ill and you've got an important meeting at 9am? We've been parents for nine years. Four of those, it was back in my hometown, really close to the family. So I've experienced both the times when the family, immediate family is like a short drive away and also when they're like a flight and multiple time zones away. So I do think, you know, the expression like it takes a village to raise a child is so true. What you need to do when you live away from your immediate family is you need to find your village. We've always bonded with other parents in the cities we've lived in. Those are the parents, they know what you're going through. They're going through it too. So once your kids are in school and you can kind of meet other parents, I mean, there are times when you have the real life emergencies come up and you ring up another parent. And I mean, for us, we've been fortunate that they don't even blink. They just take it on. I mean, and we've done it too. Our son's uh, friend's dad a few months ago, he needed surgery and we took our son's friend in for a week. Like no questions asked. You know, everyone needs their village. The property industry is still widely considered Mm. a male industry or certainly male orientated. With few women in high powered roles, have you found this challenging and how do you get your inspiration Mm. to go into the next big thing? Yeah, it really still is. I think back to where we started, to where we are now. This is like 17 years later. I feel like the ratio really really isn't that much different like in the men and women in senior roles. And I don't know if it's ever really discouraged me. If anything, my personality probably like naturally embraces the challenge. Yeah. But I mean, in the early years, there would maybe be myself plus like one other female investment analyst in the company that had like 12 investment analysts. I've definitely... um had my fair share of the times in those early years that you'd be in a meeting with external people. You're the only female in the room. You're young in your early 20s. And the external people just naturally assume that you're the assistant there to fetch them their coffee. It happened more times than I care to to share, but it did. But then I also think like there's big cultural shifts that happened over 17 years. I mean, I can't remember men taking parental leave. I mean, now it's so much more normal. When I first started working, I remember talking to um, a VP and she'd just come off her second maternity leave and she only took four months off and her male colleagues would ask her all the time, so how was your baby vacation? And to now look and see the amount of men who take parental leave, I'm like, I mean, that's a massive cultural like society shift that, that I think changes like the world dramatically over the last like decade and a half. How have you dealt with these challenges mm. and to anyone else out there who 
feels those challenges at the moment what would, what would your words of wisdom be over the years I think your biggest thing is you have to have a, a network of support like so same way like you know with with kids and stuff like you need social interaction we and we we need help you can't do things in isolation people talk a lot about mentorship you know it's usually in the context of having someone older than you advising you and, and if you can have that that's great my first job was there for two years and I had it and it was it was phenomenal like the advice and the coaching that she gave me in, in situations they were just so excellent I did find like later on later stages that my strongest mentorship situations came from my best friend they're the ones over the years that you, you can talk to each other about the issues and the challenges because we're all facing them when I think about mine they're, they're not in, in property not commercial real estate but it's so similar in every industry yeah. that we're all facing such similar things and so you get together and you brainstorm and you you know you help each other out so you need to talk it through you can't do it all in your head in isolation and actually think it, it's helpful if they're not in your industry too because then they kind of come with a different perspective as well definitely yeah what do you think needs to be done to attract and retain more women mm. in the industry and bring about change i mean i think the industry this probably goes for men and women though but i think the industry needs to get out there in the universities got to get into the recruiting process it's a really great opportunity to get in front of students and educate them that there's big really interesting diverse industry out there that they may not even be thinking of retention there's probably many reasons why women leave. First one that comes to my mind is, and, and this is like personal experience from knowing other people, like I think the problem over the last few decades is it's always been the societal expectation that women are the primary caregivers of children. And corporate environments, you know, were not really set up to support it. So if you wanted to progress in your career and have a family, you somehow have to be this superhuman being doing it all and your kids get sick and it's the mother who stays home that made it really challenging to push your career forward. If you think back over the decades, this is a time when work from home was, you know, it's really impractical in terms of technology. So like, couldn't pick up things from home and carry on. I mean, over those years, we, I think we lost a lot of good women from the industry. You know, the other thing in those decades is you didn't really see the fathers being very active. There's never a time I can remember when a male VP becomes a father and anyone would be like, oh, no, how are you going to be able to juggle, you know, your work and your fatherhood? Yeah. And yet you would hear basically any woman get asked that question back then, too. It'd be like, how are you going to juggle both? Yeah. I mean, this is times when companies, they have like big manuals, like I'm thinking about the big corporates, they have the big policy manuals and they talk about maternity leave policy. But I mean, they didn't have any parental leave policy and... The cultural shift for fathers in the workplace has been incredibly noticeable. Like Canada, now the way the leave works there is the first 15 weeks is maternity leave for the mother, but then the next 35 weeks is parental leave and it's open for either parent to take in any combination. I personally have two friends, fathers, who took the majority of the parental leave and they stayed home with the babies and the huge shift that society has gone through. So we're definitely going in the right direction. I think juggling parenthood with work is becoming less of a woman's thing to deal with and much more something that like all parents struggle with together. I do know quite a few women who did leave the property sector, though. I remember this is not even that long ago. In my past, I've been advised that, you know, you're never going to get promoted in this company if you're leaving the office at five. And this is a time where I was literally every day logging back into work after my little one was in bed to crunch through whatever tasks were still on my list for several hours every night. But it's really telling how much FaceTime in the office still mattered to that, you know, to that person. So I get it. Women basically hit a point where something has to give. You either choose like the family or, you know, your career and like they choose to leave the industry. And these are, you know, really ambitious, highly talented women. The ones that I can like personally know, they all ended up going and doing something incredibly entrepreneurial and incredibly successful. 
I'm so happy for them, but it's so unfortunate for the industry. I left too. Like I took two years out, you know, the corporate world after my second child was born. I did contract work. I set up my own little consulting business. And I mean, at that time in my life, I needed flexibility. No company was offering the flexibility that I needed. So I had to kind of create my own situation in my own hours where I could pick my contracts on my own terms. Part-time was, you know, unheard of. I did come back to it. I got lucky that in my time consulting and doing contract work for two years, a friend of a friend connected me to a company and he was um, very open to trying part-time. I mean, the initial conversations were like, how's this going to work? I don't understand. Like it was still so new of a concept, but that was the trigger for me to then get back into the corporate. And then, you know, now I'm, I'm back full time. It's very easy to then be like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I want to leave the industry and kind of do my own things. You know what helps? I mean, I think flex time, flexible work hours, work from home options, tremendously help out working mothers. At the end of the day, it really should just matter like if the work gets done. I think the other thing is companies need to make this not really just a women's thing. It's got to be available to everyone. You, you have to make this normal to the company and then it's easy for everyone to access. And what is your advice that you wish you'd been given at the start of your career that you would like to share with our listeners? I think at the very start of the career, and maybe it was something that should be mentioned in school is your first job is really not going to be it. When I first started working, it's like that shock of like, oh, this is what the real world is, you know, is all about. At the beginning, like it would have been nice to hear, relax, it's going to work out. You're going to try a bunch of different things. It's highly unlikely that the first job you pick is going to be the career path for the rest of your life. Be open to things, try out new opportunities if you can move around the world. I mean, I speak very highly of it. I've had fantastic experience. I think you learn so much when you move abroad. And same with when I switched into fund management logistics. It is completely different than from where I first started. Well, thank you so much, Sylvia. I've learned so much. I hope our listeners have too. And thank you, Sylvia, for coming on to our first ever Property Woman podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.